Welcome to the Grumpy Metalheads podcast with the Heavy Metal Strength Coach and Shrub666. Hi everyone and welcome to another edition of the Grumpy Metalheads podcast. I am one of those Grumpy Metalheads and my name is the Heavy Metal Strength Coach and I'm joined as ever by Shrubs 66, motherfucking 6. Shrubs, how you doing man? I'm good, good for an early morning. <laughs> this is our third episode talking about um, Battle Sagoth, mentioned their first two releases so far and we are on to the next album of the Epic Saga which has the wonderfully silly name of Starfire Burning upon the Ice-Failed Throne of Ultima Tule. <laughs> Am I saying that correctly, Shrubs? I think so, yeah. Tula, Tule, I don't know, something like that anyway. Well, this was released via Cacophonous Records in November 1996, and it was recorded in August 96. And Balsagoth were again using Academy Studios in Yorkshire under the watchful eye of Mags. And to quote in one of uh, the many quotes from Byron today, from October 1995 until July 96, Balsagoth unexpectedly locked themselves away to write their much-anticipated second album. A monumental milestone in the annals of metal is thus created. The world suspected little of what the band had in store with the second magnificent opus. What do you think of that, Shrubs? That's very grandiose. (laughs) As usual, Byron conceives the story and the cover art. Johnny Maudley provides drums and keyboards, and Chris Mardley provides guitar and bass. The album clocks in at 52 minutes. I don't really know if it's black metal. I don't know, really know if it's power metal. What do you think? I don't know, kind of. Yeah, I'd kind of make up a genre for itself almost. It's kind of cinematic black metal, I think, is probably the best way to describe this album. It doesn't complete... There's definitely elements of black metal in it. It's there quite clearly, but there's so much more cinematic stuff, which a lot more the, the power metal bands start to use later on, but it, it straddles that universe <laughs> between the two. It's a great listen. With I, I thoroughly enjoy it. The only bit that kind of, for me, I don't enjoy too much is there is so much more spoken word elements on this album. And, yes. and I, at times I feel it's too much. For, as a personal taste, I, I feel it's a little bit too much. And I, I'd much prefer if he'd stuck with doing, like the combination vocals that he had on that first album and those demos where he did a good mix between kind of the death metal growls and the black metal howls. They, they, I, I felt that was a good combination. It's going to be interesting to see whether they get the balance better in later albums or whether they go more down the spoken word or they, they keep with this balance because um, I haven't heard any albums from here. I have briefly, but not enough to sort of like be able to critique like I've done, just done with this one here. I really want to take everyone through the track list, which I think the song names are amazing. Then we have the first song. Black dragons soar above the mountain of shadows. It's so silly, I love it. 
Yeah, yeah. Uh, the, the next one is to it's do just an intro song, so there isn't, you know, it's just massive cinematic type intros. Yeah. Yeah. And then we have to dethrone the witch queen of Mytos Kun. Now we have song three. Yeah, you say that last part of it, don't you? <laughs> As the vortex illumines the crystalline walls of Kvar Avulthar. And we've got the title track, and we have a journey to the Isle of Mists, the splendor of a thousand swords gleaming, which sounds like a pornographic film. Song seven, and lo, when the Imperium marches against Gul Kothoth. And we have summoning the, guard- summoning the guardians of the Astral Gate. We have in the raven-haunted forests of Darkenhold, and that must be where it becomes black metal, surely. Uh, and then we finish with At the Altar of the Dreaming Gods. And I've got loads of notes about all the lyrics that we're going to go into in a few minutes' time. So, Shrubs, what did you think of the album? I know that you thought there was a little bit too much spoken word, but what about everything else on there? Just everything else I thought was really good. The production's really, really nice and crisp on here. It, it, again, I think it's another step up from, from the debut album. Musically, it's very, very good. There's definitely a lot more keyboards in this one as well, given that that atmosphere and that kind of orchestral feel around the music. It's definitely more cinematic than than the first one, so you get the feel that this is definitely more of a, a story-based album, like you're about to discuss anyway with it. It definitely gives you that feel about the whole album. It flows nicely, though, listening to it on my nice journey home from Manchester last night. <laughs> um, for, for anyone that wants to follow along with what I'm saying, the lyrics are pretty much fully explained on the Balsagoth website. Just click on their lyrics tab and you can pretty much read through um, this whole thing. I'm not going to read it word for word or anything like that, but we do have some good quotes in there and I found this absolutely fascinating and it really fleshed out the universe that they're trying to create. Subjects explored in the lyrics will start from song one um, and then uh, over across about 10 pages of notes, we'll work our way through them. So song one, our number one um, on the lyrics tab is Black Dragon Soar Above the Mountain of Shadows. There's a little quote there. It says, above me, a wondrous flight of ebon dragons soar on vast wings blacker than the darkling heavens. And we hear about an Orphidian king Maybe they're his dragons. I don't know. And we're here of the legend of the Battle of Black Helm Vale, the vast armies of Mitos Kun, Zarashana, the Witch Queen, Marshal of the Armies, strengthening her pillaging armies with powerful sorcery. We hear about the destruction of the Delanian royal family and all its supporters. And Zarashana's legions are commanded by the Battle Lord. Talus Ebonfire, a man of sublime brutality. <laughs> Many believe to be possessed by a demon. And emboldened by victory, the hordes of Mitos Kun begin invading the lands of the northern tribes from the snow kingdoms, which were recently united into a strong realm by the warrior king, Kaelin Tar. <laughs> and that's all in song one. <laughs> this is all in song one. It's only three minutes long. <laughs> yes, Caleb Tarr is the wolf of the north, and it sounds a little like William Wallace to me. It's like if William Wallace was in Atlantis. Caleb Tarr will not let the trespass on his kingdom go unpunished. And this takes us to halfway through song two. We hear of Caleb Tarr praying to the gods to feed our steel with slaughter. Let every blow be a killing blow. 
and the night is with the crimson rain. It's so silly, I love it. <laughs> We're here of Caelan Tor predicting epic victory and the claiming of many heads. Heads fall with each swing of his blade. The gods of the north will be pleased with his work. Caelan kills Talos Ebonfire, who has the best name ever, as, in as his intestines literally explode out of his body, and this is a quote, in a pulsing mass, but a shadowy figure rises from his corpse and escapes into the night. The armies of Mitos Kun were turned back from the frontiers of the Northern Kingdom. Even deserters are hunted down and killed. The Witch Queen is sent two gifts, the fallen banner of her army, and the other is the head of Talos Ebonfire. This ruins the hold of the Witch Queen until she was driven from the palace by her own elite guard, but it will not be the last that we hear from her. And that takes us to the end of song two, which is only nine minutes, so I don't know how they got that much story in there. And in song three, we hear about the greatest city in all of the Middle Kingdom, if not the world. And I don't know how to say this one, but it's Kor Aval Thar, with splendid walls of shimmering crystal, which has withstood the barrage of many a siege until blackened-winged devils surge forth from the void, bringing cataclysm to the land until there was silence. We're here of the Tomb of Shadows. We're here of the Black Galaxy, the great city now forever black, to become the City of Shadows, which brings us into Song 4. Shrubs, anything so far that you want to uh, elaborate on there, my friend? Um, no, it, it, it's definitely spectacular. He's definitely nicking stories from history. So you got Vlad the Impaler with like the Reign of Blood and stuff like that. So, and and like you say, if you he's, you get a feeling of William Wallace, no doubt there's elements of that. Armies of the North, you could imagine that's like harking back to sort of like maybe even the Viking era of fighting the Vikings up in York and stuff like that. So being that they're from Sheffield anyway, so they'd have a bit of an understanding of that. <laughs> no. Oh, yeah. And that, that takes us into... Song four, which is Starfire burning upon the ice-failed throne of Ultima. Oh, that's interesting. On um, Spotify, it's ice-failed throne of Ultima rule. So maybe that got changed. I'll look into that. Anyway, song four, the title track is an old Northlander war song, which very much sounds very Viking, as Shrub said. Um, the sacred moon crystal guiding Vaughn Helmsmiter to the ice realm, trying to avoid the sentinels at the caverns of eternal mist. The ice gem leads him ever northwards. The ice gate opens to fulfill a prophecy and ice monsters. I'm not making this, well, he did, but I am. Uh... <laughs> this is great. Battle follows and the snow turns crimson. Remember everyone, don't eat crimson snow. Echoes of great battles, and empires of Ultima Tool. Ice gods sleep here. The ancient language on these monstrous tombs suddenly make... Ooh, oh, there's the sacrifices to Vorin as he lays dying. His realm 
he is just a vessel. He realizes he's just a vessel to the vile priests of Zothan Kerr, and it is they who brought him here to steal the energy from the ice throne. And for generations have they planned their actions, but he breaks their spell. He dies, destined to rule forever from the ice throne that sinks back into the earth. This is this is some epic stuff here, isn't it? Yeah, it's massive sounding. I mean, it, it goes along with it musically. It is. It does sound. It does sound big. It does sound like he's created this ginormous universe musically as well as lyrically. So yeah, it definitely sounds completely epic. Even when listening to it, you you just get the feeling that this is something big and epic. I mean, the song titles definitely tell you you've got something big and epic. <laughs> now we're on to song five, Journey to the Isle of Mists from the log of the Northern man, uh, Mariner. So this is definitely exploring that Viking realm a little bit more with serpent proud ships voyaging towards the unknown. And there's actually not too much um, on that one. I think that's just um, a little spoken word piece, isn't it, Shrubs? I think so, yeah, if I remember rightly. Because it all kind of flows massively as what, what it feels like one ginormous long track anyway, with pretty much like you're watching a film as it, as it progresses it you get you've got the same feeling with all the songs because they do tend to they do sound different but they tend to feel like it, it's all one massive piece with different elements in it so so yeah and like i said there's lots of spoken word in there so yeah, I think it is just, I, if I remember rightly, that one is just spoken word, yeah. And the notes of the next song had chapters. <laughs> yes, uh, and in song six, um, the splendour of a thousand swords gleaming. Um, we have Altaris, we have two characters, Altaris and Xerxes. Xerxes is a seer. He is looking upon Hyperborea. We have um, Altaris, who is the king of dreams, bade to ride. Well, he's got to ride to the Ring of Stones as horns sing of him losing his throne. Assassins stalk the king. He survives the horrible sorcery that's going against him. And he finds some magic from the crystal of Mera. The king must battle an ancient threat and face it proudly with his armies. His adversary, Lord Angsar, the Dark Liege of Chaos, basically says, Come on then, I'm the Scourge of Lemuria, you slag. I will take your throne and your weak-ass king. The king rides out in front of his Hyperborean army at the front of his mighty legions, guided by the Mirror Crystal. The king leads his army to the shadow-haunted mountains of the dead. I fucking love this. He goes into a cave for three days where he gained terrible knowledge and carrying a huge black sword, which was made of coarse obsidian and contains the essence of an immortal warrior shaman, obviously. <laughs> the one who wields it would wield this power and battle the chaos liege and the army and the, and the war can commence. So we have the army of the king versus an army of wraiths. And into the fray, we ride. Anything else, um, Shrubs? We're, we're getting towards song seven now. No, it, it's just, I mean, nicking from Tolkien now with wraiths and stuff like that as well. Oh, there's, there's nothing that's um, unavailable to Byron. No, no. And in song seven and low, when the Imperium marches against Kulkothoth. We are told of the war between Imperium and Virogothia, which has raged for years before escalating to fully-fledged war. 
The emperor of one and the overking of the other are desperate to win the war and to win the glory. Imperium gained the upper hand, and after a series of battles, the feared legion of the Ebon Tiger can now march on Kulkothoth, the oldest and greatest city in the Virogothian Empire. But the emperor doesn't dare march on the city, as rumours abound that the Virogothian mages have discovered the ability to unlock the power of the obsidian crown, which bestows near limitless power on any army in possession of this crown. You can tell they lot themselves away to write this. <laughs> so the sorcerer is sent to the overking by the emperor to establish the truth under the pretense of bargaining over terms of Virogothian surrender. This is sounding like current events. The sorcerer is warned about the dark sorcery to come and surrender is refused. He feels great sorrow. The emperor of Imperium swears to not be defeated and summons his best forces. The legion shall march. He will not be defeated. Over a hundred thousand strong and heavily armoured and powerful, no force has ever withstood their thrust. Until now, the emperor looks upon Kulkothoth from the army camp, confident of victory, which leads us into Song 8, summoning the guardians of the Astral Gate. The Astral Gate, where you can travel beyond our world, looms between the peaks of the great mountain of shadows. Say the right things in the right place and at the right time, and you can swing this gate wide open. The aspirant has the key, the know-it-all, and the timing with his incantations and orb in hand. The orb of summoning, used to be possessed by the Black Templars, who are plunder-seeking knights from the east. The aspirant opens the Astral Gate. The aspirant has awakened the guardians. The aspirant is a mere mortal. This summoning may drive him insane. The guardians arrive and turn him to stone, as this is the price of enlightenment. Which leads us, obviously, into Song 9. And Song 9 is in the raven-haunted forests of Darkenhold. This sounds very Tolkien-esque. We hear the words of the immortal forest king. Ancient trees seem to be called to battle in a Tolkien ant-like scene. The immortal king is ready to defend his kingdom as he bows and prays to the old gods for favour. An oracle speaks to the king. The summoning is nearly complete as veiled enemies plan hidden treachery from the east. The album finishes with an epilogue translated from the glyphs carved into the surface of the mysterious black altar stone and reads, Come, dark night, deep night, sweep away the fading embers of the cruel sun. Let me at last dream neath the moon's sweet light, for the quest is over and the long day's done. And uh, I have some more uh, Byron quotes for your shrubs. I'll try and stick to just five of these, but I can't promise. Are you ready? I, I, I'm all ears. So, quote number one. The quest for originality was always one of my prime directives, and I always sought to do something totally peculiar and avant-garde. That was always the key to my interpretation of extreme metal. When we write material... We totally lock ourselves away from the outside world, not allowing any aspect of the music scene to influence or interfere with what we are creating. There is a touch of magic about this band, which no one else could ever hope to emulate or fully understand. And that is an essential element to our individuality. Would you agree with that? Yes. 
Point number two, keyboards are essential to our sound. In truth, they are the core of our musical approach. Our keyboards are wholly orchestral. The way we score our material and the method by which we record it is very and symphonic in nature. When recording the keyboards, we will record the various constituent orchestral instruments layer by layer, instrument by instrument, utilizing the advanced synthesizer technology available to us. Thus, we will record the brass parts, the string parts, the woodwind and the timpani and the choirs all individually and separately in a very symphonic manner. This is part of what gives us our powerfully and uniquely orchestral sound. Is, is it unique, Trubs? Like, probably not now, but at the time, yeah, I'd have said, especially in extreme music, because like, like we discussed in, in earlier ones, um, Emperor one probably one of the only other ones that would kind of get similar, but nowhere near to the depth that they that uh, Balsagoth have got on, on this. Yeah. And, and, and you can tell, because I mentioned it earlier, that it's very orchestral and stuff like that, and, and that the keyboards are very prominent in, in this anyway. So that quote there just actually reinforces exactly what I said that, about the keyboards yeah. being yeah. very, very prominent on this. And after hearing that now, I, I didn't know that about them, that they, they basically wrote the songs for the keyboards and then added added the guitars and, and everything else around it. That, that now makes complete sense when you listen to it and, and is just sound exactly like that. Yeah, that's really cool. Quote number three. <clears throat> Balsagoth has crafted a masterpiece which sends shockwaves throughout the globe. The musical splendour and extreme lyrical genius of the album garners countless more fanatical adherents to the band, which I, I, I think he's just... I mean... He thinks he's created the best album of all time here. And the answer is no. <laughs> <laughs> it's good, but not the best album of all time. But man, you've got to, you've got to do, sometimes you've got to do your own PR and you've got to blow it up and make it 10 times bigger. You know, it's what you do <laughs> in a band. You, you, literally every band that releases an album turns around and say, this is the best we've ever done. So with every album, and then they look back in hindsight and go, that is a bag of shit. <laughs> <laughs> Which this leads us, it, but you know, <laughs> no, it's a, it's a it's a really good album. But this yeah. leads us nicely into quote number four. Yes, I do sometimes get carried away with the adjectives. I fully acknowledge that it stems from so many years of reading E.R. Burroughs, Lovecraft, C.A. Smith, and even Shakespeare. I wager, I confess that I do love the more archaic and obscure words. There's always a delightfully arcane and outlandish adjective lurking somewhere, just waiting to be used in a sentence. I shall try and rein it in a little. Well, there are worse crimes than compelling a reader to reach for a dictionary, I suppose. <laughs> so he's definitely making things as obscure as possible, but I just love how excited he seems to be about this whole thing, like how much it means to him and how much depth and how many layers to this there is. Uh, I think it's really cool that he could create this. Yeah, yeah, no, it, it's they've done they've done a great job. You know, it is it's up there with you know in in terms of like the complexity of stuff with with people like exactly like those those authors you mentioned like Lovecraft and and stuff like that. It's it's certainly in amongst that kind of realm of people. I, I I'm not the most read of those those authors either, but so I couldn't say you know in terms of literature wise whether it's up there. But you you know from the small bits I've read of those authors, it, it 
and from what I've heard in, in terms of the albums and, and the way you've broken it down today, he's certainly within that sort of realm of those. Yeah, the first the first album is very Robert E. Howard, which is what the band are named after a short story by him called yeah. The Gods of Balsagoth. And that first album is, is pretty much just a retelling of that, whereas this one seems to have drawn on a lot more diverse um, authors. It feels very Lovecraftian to me. Yeah. Um, and very Tolkien-esque. I, I'd say that those two um, are the most influential towards this. Yeah, yeah. And and also with hints of people from history, which obviously inf- infected uh, Tolkien and, and, and Lovecraft as well anyway. Like looking at the Viking sagas as such and Vlad the Impaler and stuff like that. You know, those, those sorts of characters throughout history of, you know, or those types of characters throughout history have certainly dropped into that storyline as well. Yeah. Um, And this leads us nicely into quote number five, which will close out the episode. And it's, my tales are born of the imagination and are inspired by many things, including ancient myths and legends, arcane history, dreams, and a myriad of other sources. The alternate universe of the lyrics is a fantastic place teeming with dark and sublime wonders, a place complete with its own unique history, theology, geography, mythology, and cosmology, a place of glorious carnage, epic adventure, and unparalleled darkness. The saga is eternal, and there are countless stories yet to be told. So he's taken straight out of George R. R. Martin's book then as well. <laughs> Game of Thrones and stuff like that. So, oh, but this will have come out before the first game. Of Thrones, yeah, no, which came out. Yeah, no, yeah. it came out the same year, which is really interesting. Um, <laughs> I wonder if there was a an overlap in there, but that's really collaboration cool. between Byron and George R. R. Martin. <laughs> <laughs> um, a George R. R. Martin black metal band. I absolutely love it. So, we will commence. Our next chapter in the Balsagoth universe um, with the album Battle Magic over the next few weeks. But for now, the Eternal Saga remains unexplored to a large degree. And we will see you again very soon.